3: Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, we're going to be finding out about burn pits and what the DAV is doing to try and keep them safe. We'll also be hearing from the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association with Pet Safety. Pet Safety. And before you head out for your vacation, if you haven't gone yet, Dawn Webster will be here with some travel suggestions. But we're going to start off by meeting Lynn Conrad. She's Executive Director, Rail Trail Council of Northeast Pennsylvania. And she has information on the D&H Distance Run, a half marathon and 5K coming in September. And she's also going to be telling us about the 2021 Trail of the Year That's right here in our own backyard. Lynn, welcome. Nice to have you here with us. And you are going to be telling us about a big upcoming event in September. But first, what is this that I'm hearing that right in our own backyard, we have Pennsylvania's 2021 Trail of the Year? Where is this? Yes. How about that? We were nominated
0: and we won the uh, distinction of being Pennsylvania's Trail of the Year. And of course, it's right here in, oh, it's the the eastern side of Susquehanna County. And we go into, start in Lackawanna County. It swings out into Wayne. So we have a 38-mile trail that starts in Simpson, just above Carbondale. And at that point, it connects to the south to the Lackawanna River Heritage Trail, but our trail goes to the north, and it it heads through Forest City, Uniondale, Herrick, Thompson, Soroka, Lanesboro, and it ends at the New York border, up just below Windsor, New York, and that's 38 miles of trail.
3: That's a lot of trail, and it's the DH Rail Trail, correct?
0: Yes, D and H, which stands for Delaware and Hudson. So when the railroad was built, it was meant to connect coal to the Delaware River and then over to the Hudson River. So that's why they named it that.
3: And it was an active rail line at that point in time, correct?
0: It was an active rail line starting in 1870, and it closed down. They started taking up the rail about 1980, 81. And we purchased it from the railroad in 1991.
3: I didn't realize that it had been undergoing all that and more, because once you purchased it, then what happened? You mentioned that they started taking up the the rail, but you have done so many things.
0: Right. The rail was taken up right before we purchased it. And uh, yes, it was sort of like in a bankruptcy corporation of the railroad. And it was studied, all the rail beds, you know, there's tons of rail beds in northeast PA to get coal, mostly anthracite coal, out of this region. And little by little, they all closed down. So the National Park Service did a study of which were the most feasible railroads to turn into recreational trails, and the D&H got the highest marks because it was intact and intact 38 miles, where a lot of them were chopped up and purchased, but we were lucky to buy an intact one-piece railroad, old railroad, abandoned oh
3: that's that's yes, still, we've been
0: working on it a, a long time
3: yeah that's a, a lot of, of of area to cover when you're thinking about upkeep and I understand that most of this has been or all of this has been volunteers
0: our board is all volunteers I started as a volunteer but now I, I'm a paid position um, we could not do this on our on our own, most of our um, improvement funds come through the state, the State Department of Conservation of, and Natural Resources. There's also a federal funds. Every state uh, Department of Transportation sets aside a little percentage of their highway dollars for trails and sidewalks and non traditional means of transportation. But we were lucky to get some of those funds early on to help us purchase the rail bed. So and it's always I'm always grant writing all
3: <laughs> most of the time. And when you're when you're making the changes and the improvements to the trail, one of the things that that caught my eye was the fact that we do have many beautiful trails here throughout Northeast Pennsylvania. And we always hear bicycles and hikers and walkers and runners, but you have on your list snowmobilers.
0: Yes, that is uh, probably one of the reasons we got this award is because we are a multi-purpose trail and we have been working with the snowmobile club um, Northeast PA Snow Trails since the beginning, since 1991 on. And we work together to plan maintenance uh, jobs in the summer. They work all year round to help us maintain the trail because maintenance is always an issue. And it's become more of an issue with these violent storms that we've had. I have trees down and ditches Filled with water, and so I do rely on them quite a bit. And we also allow horses, which is another reason why um, you know we're considered multi-purpose.
3: I so didn't know. We, I didn't know that.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, we have different trailheads that are large enough for people with horse trailers to you know to pull in and turn around easily and park. So yeah, it is used for horses as well. I love to see horses out on the trail. Like, I run out there with my with my cell phone camera and get their picture.
3: <laughs> well, that's so, again, that's just one of the things here in northeastern Pennsylvania that many people don't know about, don't realize, because uh, there's there are so many different, everything has its own special little thing that maybe a lot of people don't know about. And one of the things that you have coming up is the DNH Distance Run 5K. And welcome back to that. What happened there? Sounds to me like COVID.
0: Oh, exactly. We thought last year, we better not bring a whole lot of people together. Even though the trail, once you get started in a race, you're going to spread out. You know, it was just a, a decision we made, as, as many did. So um, what we did instead was we did a challenge. You go out and you either walk, walk run, or bike. And you got a T-shirt. And you can do it the whole month of September. And we're going to continue that. We're going to do a bike challenge the whole month of September, which is Pennsylvania's trail month. But the D&H distance run is back, and that's a half marathon. That's 13.1 miles. And it starts in Forest City, and it goes north along the trail. And when it gets just above Uniondale... You turn around and you come back down and you end back in Forest City. So it's an out and back. The grade is slightly uphill. It doesn't look uphill, but when you turn around and and come back down, you do feel it. It's a little bit easier coming back. So it's a great uh, half marathon for beginners who've never done that sort of distance. And um, we uh, look forward to... uh, always having new people uh, out on our trail and start to enjoy it.
3: Well, it seems as though again when you mentioned locally, you know, there there are a lot of these events that are that are starting to come back and you also still draw from neighboring states and also some other places, but most of your most of the people that do take part are local, right?
0: Yes, most of them are local, and most of them are aware of the trail and use it for training. We um, schedule this event to be five weeks before the Steamtown Marathon. So if you're training for a full marathon, you should be doing a half marathon about five weeks ahead of time, whether it's on your own or in some sort of you know, competitive situation. Uh, so we do get people who are local, training for Steamtown, but we also get people from New York, New Jersey. You know, we're not that far from either of those states. So, yes, we do like to see um, and do uh, celebrate people who are from out of the area as well.
3: And since it is coming back this year for anybody who uh, didn't have the opportunity to ever take part in it before or those who did take part before may be wondering, are there going to be changes? So how do we go about getting uh, the information? How do, When do we have to sign up by? All that kind of good stuff, Lynn.
0: Not a whole lot of changes. We're probably going to have our packet pick up. We're going to lengthen that time so that we don't get a whole lot of people at one time coming to pick up what you know what they need their 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 numbers and their race packet. But right now, you can sign up. You can either go to our website, which is NEPA Braille Trails with an s.org dot org and right on our homepage is a link to get be registered. So, they are our registration company that we're using. You can either register online that way or there will be a brochure on our website that you can download and, and just send it in. So, at this point, uh registration for the uh, half marathon is uh $45, which is a bargain, based if you look at other races, and we would like to have that in our hand by August 16th. If not, you can show up the day of or even send it in later, but the price goes up. The price goes up to 60 and hopefully you'll get a shirt if you don't sign up in time. But to make sure you get a shirt, and, of course, it's going to have Pennsylvania Trail of the Year on it somewhere, um, we would like to see you signed up by August 16th.
3: When people are getting interested in things that are happening up there, and you mentioned your website, is that also where they can find any certain events or anything like that? Yes.
0: Yes. Our website is pretty um, up. Date with events. We do have bike events, uh, hiking events. Um, we try to do a historical stroll type event. So, yes, all of our events are on there. There is a good map of the trail on there. We, there's a way to contact us um, on our website. So, you know, you can send us any questions. You can become a member. Membership is voluntary, but it does help us to match some of our grants. Any grants to improve the trail requires a match of either 20% or 50%, up to 50%. So, yes, and a lot of the information about what our plans are. So, of our 38 miles of trail, 20 are improved. So you can get on the trail in Carbondale and ride your bike or run or walk for 20 miles up and then 20 miles back down. So that 40 miles is actually starting to attract people from out of the area. You know, that they'll, they'll drive here two or three hours to be able to, you know, kind of get out on the trail and spend the day. Our website is a great place to find out a lot of information.
3: You mentioned improvements. Uh, uh, have you been work? And of course, I know because of COVID, a lot of things have been slowed down. But what have you been doing during uh, COVID in order to make improvements on the trail that people who are regulars might just come across and say, oh, well, look at this.
0: Right, right. Yes, we, you know, of course, continue to write grants and, and try to get some projects done. Uh, most of our improvements have come in the in the southern half of the trail from Carbondale up 20 miles, which is Ararat, which is the high point of our trail in, in elevation. But now we're starting to work on the northern section of the trail, the section that's up by Susquehanna, Lanesboro. Um, the Sterecka Viaduct is up there, which is that railroad bridge built by the Erie Railroad of bluestone. There are 17 arches of bluestone that still carries a railroad across it, uh, an active railroad. We go under that Staraka viaduct. So that's the part of the trail that we're improving right now. We have three ramps that we're all working on at the same time to improve the surface, to improve the drainage to put up signage. We're putting in a trailhead. We are putting in a pedestrian bridge where, unfortunately, a railroad bridge was taken out. We're putting in a new bridge um, across the Staraka Creek. So the improvements are happening up in the northern section of trail that is so beautiful because it goes along the Staraka Creek. It goes under the Staraka Viaduct. And then it goes along the Susquehanna River. So it's it's completely, it's kind of a different feeling up there. And we're excited to see that. all oh, it's begun, but I'm imagining it won't be actually finished until next spring. So that'll be exciting.
3: And what are some things that we, who hearing about this now, are going to say, this sounds like someplace we need to go to and spend a couple of hours and enjoy and get into the outdoors. What are some of the things that maybe we can do in order to help you? Become a
0: member. Like I said, membership is voluntary, but, um, we have, you know, a family membership, an individual membership, senior membership, uh, like a a regular individual is $20 a year. And that, like I said, helps us to match our grants. We need cash matches for our grants to improve the trail. Um, with that, you'll you'll be more aware of what our plans are. We do a newsletter quarterly, and that gets sent out either by mail or by email. and then you'll know exactly what we're up to. You can come visit us here at our office. In Uniondale, which is right on the trail, you'll pick up a map. You'll you know you'll get the latest. You can visit the store that is next to us, which it seems like it's a good place where people either start get on the trail in Simpson or Forest City, and they ride up the trail on their bike. They have lunch or breakfast here, and then they ride down. When you're riding back down. You're only keeping the momentum going. It, it's not a tough bike back. So we have a wonderful trailhead here to visit. We have a caboose that actually ran on the D and we are restoring it. The outside is done, and now we're working on the inside, and we're working on some interpretive signage. So along the trail, you'll also see interpretive signage that tells you the history of the railroad. You'll see a bridge abutment and say, now why is there a bridge abutment here in the middle uh, sitting on the trail with no bridge on it? We interpret that. So that's one of our goals, is to keep the history of the railroad alive when you you know are riding your bike or walking on the trail.
3: That's wonderful. And who said that you can't have education while you're out there enjoying the outdoors and you don't even know you're doing it. (laughs) Right. right. Well, tell us once again, give us all the details, Lynn, about the uh, upcoming September. Uh, What is it? The date? We need that. We need how to get everybody involved. I'm just going to open up the microphone and let you go.
0: Yes. The DNH distance run is back. It is our 12th annual. Did skip last year and it's on September 12th. The race starts off at nine o'clock. You can either sign up for the half marathon or you can sign up for a 5k which will which will start at like 905. Once the half marathons are gone, we, we have a 5k. Uh, the best way to sign up is to get me registered. Or you can go to our website, which is org, and all the information is there about the race. There's a race brochure that gives you all the sponsorship information, uh, the water stop information, what you need to know. And we hope that people will sign up for this either 5K or half marathon. By August sixteenth. That will ensure you a special shirt because we are trail of the year for Pennsylvania. So we will have the DH distance run and 5K shirt with the uh, Pennsylvania Trail of the Year logo. So hopefully people will sign up and get out here. And if not, just get out here and enjoy the trail. You can get on the trail and Carbondale, Simpson, Forest City. Come up here to Uniondale and stop at our office and we'll give you all the information you need about the trail and our our plans
3: for the future. I'm going to start calling you the, the mama of the trail of the year. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, the D&H yes. trail mama. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, I've been working for a long time and
0: we are very happy to so many people out enjoying the trail. You know, everybody says, well, how did COVID affect you? It actually got us more people out here. More people came to use the trail. We have trail counters. We had seen a 200% increase in trail use over the past year and a half. People know they can get out and they can be out in the outdoors in the fresh air and Rarely see a whole lot of people. You just kind of pass a few people here and there. It's been wonderful.
3: Thanks once again to Lynn Conrad, Executive Director, Rail Trail Council of Northeast Pennsylvania, with information on the DNH Distance Run. And if you would like to find out more, again, their website org. More special edition to come. Now on Special Edition, Dawn Webster, Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress, has travel safety suggestions. Dawn, there's still plenty of time left in the summer. People are still thinking about going places. And there's still, of course, that concern, though, with being safe. So what kind of suggestions do you have for us today? Sure. So there are a ton of good resources
4: on the CDC website. And there's still lots of health concerns other than COVID that people kind of aren't thinking about right now. So, one of them that we haven't heard about for a while is Zika. So, Zika is a virus spread by mosquito bites. And the biggest risk of Zika are for women that are pregnant or may become pregnant. Because if you have the Zika virus during pregnancy, it can actually cause birth defects. So, Um, The CDC does not recommend that women who are pregnant travel to any areas where there is Zika virus. And if you're going to, or if you have to for work, they recommend that you talk to your OB to see what you can do to help prevent it because there isn't a vaccine or treatment for it. And how would
3: someone know they have it? Well,
4: typically you don't know, and that's the problem. Um, You can have mild um, flu-like symptoms, so chills, fatigue, aches, but really, unfortunately, it's not one of the ones that, you know, you get a rash or spots or, you know, something that you know for sure. So you have to have the blood work done and really there's no way to know if you if you don't have the
3: symptoms unless you get screened by blood work. That seems to be a concern with a lot of different things, Dawn. There's so much crossover from one to another because a lot of the symptoms seem the same. Yes. Most viruses cause very similar symptoms, fevers, aches, um, sometimes just
4: mild, diffuse rash, vomiting. Um, and a lot of actually other diseases can cause it too, not just viruses. So, For example, um, malaria is another disease spread by mosquitoes, but this one's actually parasitic. It, It actually spreads a parasite. And again, it can really affect pregnant women, and they can actually transmit the parasite to the child while they're pregnant. So. Another one that the CDC does not recommend that pregnant women go to are areas where there's malaria.
3: And again, that's one of those things where you would assume that you know. Is there any way that you might be able to find out, let's say you are going someplace? And it doesn't have to be exotic, but even if you're just thinking about maybe taking a trip to the shore, that you'd be able to find out if there are things in those particular areas that might not be in our area? Yes. So the CDC website has
4: all kinds of maps and um, statistics of where they've seen these viruses, where it's been reported. So yes, you can find all of that information on the
3: CDC website. So before you think about going, and not only if you're pregnant, but just if you're planning on going someplace... Is it a good idea or is it necessary to maybe talk to your physician before you go and kind of get a heads up as to even as, even something as simple as a tetanus shot?
4: Yes, yes, absolutely. So it's a wonderful idea. And the other thing that you can do when you're at your, your appointment with your family doctor is you can make sure you're up to date on your other shots. So, for example, the measles vaccine. So, measles is still around. It's highly contagious. Um, It's spread through cough, sneezing. So, just like COVID and the flu, and this can also cause long-term complications. So, this one's preventable. This one, you get your MMR when you're little, but unfortunately, it doesn't last forever. So, this one, you can get a booster shot, And a lot of times what they'll do is they'll test you to see if you still have the titers, if you're still protected. And if not, they'll give you a booster. So yes, this is something that's a a great idea to talk to your family doctor about.
3: When you're also thinking about taking a vacation and or doing any traveling at all, what are some of the other things that we should be wary of? Because again, you mentioned coughing, you mentioned um, sneezing, you know, again, things that we would, but what about contact, if not person to person, just walking up the steps and holding on to the handrail. Sure. Yes. So obviously there are germs everywhere, which I feel like we all really started paying
4: attention to once COVID kind of came out. Um, so, yes, I mean, always keep hand sanitizer with you. Try to wash your hands as much as possible. If you do sneeze or blow your nose or cough, even if you're not wearing a mask and you, you do it in your arm like you're supposed to, make sure you use hand sanitizer or wash your hands afterward. And then you also have to remember to do it with the children, too. So, you know, you can tell your kids, oh, you just sneeze, go wash your hands. And sometimes they don't always do it. So it's good to kind of, you know, keep an eye on them, make sure they're really going into the bathroom, washing their hands or using the hand sanitizer.
3: You're right. I think a lot of people have become much more vigilant when it comes to things like that. So what are what are some of the other things that you'd like to leave our listeners with today if they are going to be traveling or even even as far as just traveling downtown to the store? Sure. So um, one of the things I always like to mention is um, if you are going anywhere
4: um, abroad, especially, be very, very careful with what you're eating and drinking. Because it's very different when when you're traveling to places like Mexico or Puerto Rico. Um, You have to be very careful. And traveler's diarrhea, which is the most common travel-related illness. Though it's not serious, it can be. So typically, people can recover from it very easy, but it can cause dehydration, which can make people very sick. So just be very careful um, with your food sources, with your drink sources. And then also, in terms of the things like Zika and malaria, um, use insect repellent. So a lot of times, you know, you go to these resorts, or even Florida or Louisiana and, and you're just not used to how many mosquitoes there are because we have them in Pennsylvania but not nearly as many and so you want to definitely make sure you're using an insect repellent that either has something like DEET in it or even some of the natural ones that have the oil of lemon
3: or eucalyptus um, to prevent the bites because prevention really is best. And we can't forget safe pets. We're going to meet Dr. Douglas Kratt. He's the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association. Let's get going here because we love our animals. And I know we always want to do what's best for them.
5: You know, sometimes a great time we get out, we're more active, but you know, usually our pets um, or our dogs more specifically might be out in the backyard a little bit more and People are gardening and, and doing things like that. So although we enjoy it, there are potentials for, for some problems out in the yard um, that, that they can encounter. You know, we, some people use certain fertilizers and things that can be harmful to our pets. So you got to make sure you read your packaging on that, making sure you're not exposing your animals to anything. Um, also i know um, cocoa bean mulch is is popular at times and cocoa bean um, has that chocolate derivative aspect to it which chocolate can be toxic to our pets as well and and it can sometimes trap molds and things in it so we want to be careful utilizing those things depending upon if our pets get into those areas and then there's always the possibility that some of the plants that we use for our decorations and our landscaping and landscaping could have potential toxic effects i think we know that the lilies definitely are in that way, but sometimes rhododendrons and, and things can have certain toxic aspects. So I always tell people, make sure you just check those things out for their levels of toxicity. There's so many of them that I couldn't go to all of them today, but make sure you do that that work. But And if, you, if there's a question, contact your veterinarian because they'll be able to help you if you have a specific question about a specific plant. They, they can look, um, look it up for you and help you get that information of what's safe and not safe for your pet. But by all means enjoying the time with our pets, why, why, you know, things are opening up is really important.
3: Well, in our area here in Northeast Pennsylvania, we have had a lot of rain and I know I've been hearing this and I've been seeing it actually in my own backyard. I have an influx of mushrooms that are coming up all over the place. And again, as I said, the dog and the cat, because we have a fenced-in yard, she likes to go out too, and she stays within her confines because she knows she has a pretty good here. So what do you do when you have things like that where I go out, I clean up every day, but then when I go out again, there's a mushroom or two popping up?
5: I, I think that that's exactly what you need to do is to clean up every day and you could potentially talk with um, uh, a long care professional on is there um, some type of uh, product that you could put down that's pet safe that may uh, hinder the mushrooms from coming up but I have the same issue that you do and one of my dogs um, would treat this I think like uh, truffles at times they would just seek them out and I'd have to hurry up and get over there and and make sure that we got them out of the way so um, there wouldn't be any toxic side effects from anything.
3: And the same thing along the lines of that is, again, as I said, we have a fenced in yard, but we still get some other critters in there. And I can always tell when the rabbits have been stopping by. How do you do? <laughs> how do you deal with that?
5: So, you know, there are certain um, things that you can sprinkle around the uh, perimeter of your yard that may help keep the rabbits out, but as you talked about, they can be rinsed away with with the weather that we encounter. Um, with those wild animals um, that can come into our yard, there's always the possibility that they can bring disease with them, parasites or or certain bacteria like leptospirosis. Um, you know, so making sure that hey, well, and then don't forget, they'll also bring some little critters with them, like like fleas. Um, and, 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 the ticks are this time of year. So making sure that you're having your pets protected from the parasites, but that they're also, uh, um, protected with various immunizations or vaccines that are relevant to your area. And so, you know, the, uh, the certain diseases are more prevalent in certain parts of the country than they are in other parts of the country. And so always talking with your veterinarian to make sure that you guys can assess what, what, um, their lifestyles are. So, you know, a, a confined backyard is relatively safe location, but there's certain things that they're exposed to versus if the cat's exclusively an indoor cat or if the dogs and things get um dogs or cats get to roam further, they can be exposed to more things as well. Uh, so making sure that you have these discussions and that your animals properly immunized as wellness care is taken care of and that, that's the parasite that you have some form of parasite control with them as well.
3: When you're also talking, and again, we don't have this too much in our area but um, where we would have to leave, but we do have things such as thunderstorms, we have fireworks, things like that that can make your pet uh, decide that they want to just run. And what do you do when it turns out that you do have a storm situation or fireworks that cause your pet to get very upset, is there anything that you can do to keep them safe?
5: So there are. um, First of all, it's obviously going to take a little bit of planning because when these things pop up, um, your pet's already anxious. So I always tell people, just as a good rule of thumb, try to keep an up-to-date photo of your pet. Make sure that their contact information on their tags and their microchip information is up to date, just in case, they get so nervous and they run away and break your fence or whatever the answer may be. But then when these fireworks happen or the thunderstorms happen, there are various things that can do it. If it's possible bring your animal to an inter- inter- inside room put on the television or some music maybe even just a little bit louder than normal and so then they may not be able to hear the fireworks or they may not hear the thunder now a lot of pets though can feel that pressure change when these storms come through so that doesn't always work for them then there's other things that you can try Um, there are certain um, like uh, Lycra shirts and things that you can put that your pet feels like they're being hugged not too tight but feeling hugged and sometimes that works through it and you know, as another alternative, again, talking with your veterinary team, there may be medications that can work for for certain parts of this, but we always try to go in a stepwise process um to use the least amount of intervention that we can that your pet's still happy, still healthy, not nervous, um, you know, so they're living their best life.
3: So what should you do if it turns out that your pet does get away? Of course, my first thought would be got to check that microchip. So we have one of those, but are there things I know in our area, we do have some groups that actually go out and can help you find a lost pet, but are there things, are there other things we can do?
5: Contact your shelter, contact your veterinary clinic. Cause frequently you have some sort of tag that may be associated with your veterinary clinic on your dog's um, uh, collar or your dog or cat's collar contact the microchip company to make sure your information is up to date with them because they may be trying to reach out to you um, uh, social media is is you know there's some neighborhood social media things that you can post um, contact um again i think i already said contact your shelter walk the neighborhood see if you can have it um, see if you can find your pet Leave a little bit of food out by the back door that hopefully that they can make it there and, and watching for them. Um, and then ask your neighbors and ask your friends in the neighborhood if they've seen your pet or, or how could, and if, or if they'll go help you walk the neighborhood, try to find, try to find, uh, Fido or Fluffy.
3: Or Mia or Pookie scammer in my case. <laughs>
5: <laughs> exactly.
3: And give us a little bit of the uh, the background of the American Veterinary Medical Association.
5: So the American Veterinary Medical Association is a national organization of veterinarians. We have ninety seven thousand members um, working in various areas of animal and food advocacy. Um, We're also advocating for all levels of our profession, um, monitoring the educational levels on that aspect, but we are um, concerned about animal health and well-being. Um, above and beyond all.
3: Thanks once again to Dr. Douglas Kratt, president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, and also to Don Webster, advanced practice clinician director with MedExpress. Now don't go away. When we come back, if you've never heard of burn pits, you're going to learn what they are and who's fighting to try and keep them safe on special edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. Now, Shane Learman. He is the Deputy National Legislative Director for the DAV, and he is fighting for veterans and service members who have been exposed to burn pits. Shane, let's talk about something that I really didn't know anything about until this crossed my desk. Burn pits? Can you explain what that is?
1: Yes, Paula. Burn pits have been used by the military throughout our history, and they really started in prolific use over the last 20 or 30 years, starting in the first Persian Gulf and then uh, OIF and OEF, Afghanistan, Iraq, and other parts. What it is, when the military needs to destroy or get rid of equipment and trash and garbage, they have to find a way to get rid of it or destroy it. So a lot of times they'll put them in huge piles, set them on fire with jet fuel, and burn them. Now, some of these bases, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, they would be burning all day long. And to get a real sense of how big some of these burn pits were, think of your local high school football field covered in human waste, toxic chemicals, unused uh, ammunition, all variety of things, equipment, computers, electronics, burning all day long, with jet fuel. And they're located right in the same vicinity where our servicemen and women are. So a lot of times they're breathing this in in the morning during their time on the base in the evening while they're sleeping, while they're having their meals throughout the day. They're constantly in these toxic fumes, the smoke and the chemicals the entire time they're there.
3: Wow. I never even knew of such thing existing. And when I think about even here at home, um, local ordinances, when you're burning leaves, that that can be a problem. Now, you are the deputy national legislative director with the DAV. And again, thank you for your service. When when did this really become come to light and how did you get involved in this? Well,
1: in 2007, DAV was the first organization really to realize that this was causing a huge problem. We we found a memorandum that talked about the toxins and the negative impacts it was having, and we've been pushing for legislation ever since that time. Uh, I'm a disabled veteran myself. I've been with DAV as, a, as an advocate for 23 years, and I've been helping veterans trying to get their benefits based on toxic exposures. Uh, including burn pits. So we've been in this fight for many years trying to make sure veterans get benefits in health care because unfortunately, DA does not automatically concede or recognize that the exposures to these burn pits and these toxins and chemicals are causing long-term effects. So veterans are suffering sometimes in silence, without benefits, without access to VA health care, in order to help them get through these respiratory conditions, everything from asthma to restrictive lung diseases to lung cancer, and a whole variety of other cancers veterans are developing. 3.5 million veterans have been estimated exposed. That's why we're in this fight, to make sure they have access to these benefits that will help save their lives, make their lives better, and at the same time alleviate some of the additional pain and suffering on their own families.
3: Now, you mentioned Iraq. You mentioned Afghanistan. Do things like this exist on American soil? Not that I'm aware
1: of it, not to any of these scales. The U.S. military and DOD, a law was passed in 2011 that they weren't allowed to use these in a lot, or excuse me, in 2009, to reduce the number of these around the world, and in 2011, a lot of them were shut down and and used other means. However, there are currently nine active burn pits still throughout the world um, by DOD, by the Department of Defense.
3: And who monitors them?
1: Well, that is up to the Department of Defense, since they're in foreign countries. There's active burn pits right now in Syria and in Egypt. So our men and women there are still being exposed to these burn pits.
3: What are you hoping is going to come out of this? Or let's put it this way, what path are you on in order to make changes in this?
1: Well, we're at a historic moment right now, Paula. There are two major comprehensive toxic exposures bills in the House and the Senate. What these bills will do is they'll link some of these diseases and cancers to that exposure for these veterans and provide them a pathway to health care within the VA system. That's what we're trying to get accomplished. That's why this is such a great moment right now is because... Nobody's ever attempted anything on this scale before, and we need everybody else to get involved, right? So if we can contact our senators and representatives and let them know these are issues for us, if you go to DAV.org slash burn pits, we have a site there you can learn more about these burn pits exposures and a link to take action to get your senators and representatives behind this so that we can negotiate it through Congress without any more delays and holdups so they can stop suffering by themselves and get the help they need.
3: What would it require the VA to do then if, when it does hopefully get passed, what would the changes be?
1: Well, there would be changes that would allow uh, direct access for healthcare for those exposed to burn pits with a disease or condition, whether or not it's been recognized officially by the VA what this law would do, those who've been exposed to these toxins and burn pits would get access to VA healthcare automatically. That is huge. What it would also do is lower some of the thresholds or remove some of the barriers for them to get the benefits directly related for those diseases through the VA Benefits Administration. So it would do so many big things for veterans right now. And we're already 20 years in from Afghanistan. And we still don't have these links established. If we look back at Agent Orange in Vietnam, it's been over 50 years and a lot of them are still fighting to get diseases recognized. That's why it's so important we push so hard now. Veterans should not have to wait decades to get access to benefits and health care on conditions related to their service.
3: So right now, our veterans who are being affected by this, are they in a database where you're able to know where what happened to them happened and kind of correlate everything together?
1: Uh, The VA has created airborne hazards and burn pit registry that veterans who were exposed to these can go and log in, put in their health care information, and they can even get an examination for anything that's uh, they're suffering from can be put into this database to help them track who's been exposed and more importantly, what the conditions are, because tracking some of those diseases and conditions will help additional science and review to add more diseases that are related to these exposures.
3: Shane, before I have to let you go, let our listeners know once again what you're trying to accomplish and how they can get involved in helping you do that.
1: Thank you, Paul. We're trying to get the legislation that is currently in the House and the Senate passed through, put into law, so veterans don't have to suffer from their diseases related to burn pits and toxic exposures. Everybody can help be a part of this by going to DAV.org slash burn pits, and there's a link on there that you can click. And you can send an email and messages directly to your senators and representatives asking for their support to push these through with no more delays and, and no concerns for cost. And, and that's one of the things we're up against now. Everybody's going to start raising what costs too much. And what we want everybody to to realize is doing the right thing should never have a price tag. That's why we need everybody to take action. Thanks for listening to Special Edition A weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories.